Have you heard about Slate Day? We're putting together a whole full day of live podcasts and fun experiences in New York on June 8th. I'll be there talking to Joel Anderson, the new host of Slow Burn's third season of The Murders of Biggie and Tupac. We'll talk about our work and what's ahead on our shows. This special conversation is free for Slate Plus members and those with all access passes. For more information and tickets, go to slate.com slash live. I sent her this really intense message in retrospect that was that went something along the lines of, I don't know if you are the daughter of so-and-so Mora, but it's possible that in the early 90s, he knocked up my mother and left me as a bastard oh child. So I don't know. Could you please let me know about that? Um, otherwise, I'm so sorry. Have a great day. Oh, my God. This was the first time Isao Mora tried to reach his father as an adult. He was in college then. He told me that he had been looking for a role model his whole life, that had his father been around, he'd have a much better understanding of who he was or who he was supposed to be. Even though my dad was around when I was growing up, I still felt like I could relate. Both my parents immigrated here from Egypt, which meant we had both cultural and language barriers that kept us from really connecting in a lot of ways. So at a certain point, I stopped trying to. And that meant looking for role models elsewhere. Isau, by the way, also got an answer from his half-sister on MySpace. It just wasn't what he was expecting. I'm Eamon Ismail, and this is Man Up. On this show every week, we tell honest, embarrassing, funny, and sometimes disturbing stories that have shaped how we think about being men. This week, we're going to hear a little bit of a ghost story. Well, kind of. It's about this young man and his brief and fleeting encounters with his father, and how those moments shaped him. Or in this case, how his father's absence, a kind of invisible presence, haunted him while he tried to learn about his masculinity elsewhere. I grew up without a father. He wasn't around. By the time that I was born, he was gone. So I didn't know him. And then I never really felt like I didn't have a father. Again, I had always grown up without one. And my mom was very clear about saying, I am both. I am both your mother and your father at the same time. Like me, Isau is a first-generation immigrant. He grew up in California's Central Valley, but he's since moved to New York City to work in theater. I first met him in the New Yorican Cafe, this famous venue for art and storytelling in Lower Manhattan. He performed this piece about trying to find himself in his absent father. Mama played mom and dad for three children. She worked full-time and made us do the math. Don't confuse love for want, for need, for sooth. It started at a young age when he first became aware of the noticeable differences between him and his two older siblings. They didn't look the way that he did. He was a foot taller with broader shoulders and darker skin. When he looked in the mirror, he didn't see his two siblings. He wondered if maybe these features belonged to his father. There was no way he could be sure. But when he was six, that was about to change. Isao was finally going to meet his dad. My mom came home with my sister and she was like, I have a surprise for you. And my sister, in true Liz fashion, was just like, it's your dad. It's your dad. And I was just like, oh my God. what? What? Like, I don't, I didn't even know what that meant or what that could mean. Um, so I panicked and I went into the room and I pulled out a legal pad. It was a yellow legal pad. 
And I was like, okay, what I, what, I have to give him something, but I have nothing to give. Uh, I'm going to make him a drawing. Isao drew these adorable stick figure versions of his father and himself with arms outstretched, ready for a hug. He wrapped it and slipped it into his back pocket. His family drove past all the orchards in his California neighborhood. I was so scared, and all I wanted to do was be with my mom. Mm. I just wanted to be at her side the entire time. And I was sitting on her lap outside, and my uncle started laughing at me. And he was just like, you're with your mother all the time. You never see your father. Why aren't you sitting on his lap? So he went over. He smelled so bad. He smelled like he drove freight trucks, like semi-trucks. Um, so throughout like California. oil and exhaust. And like stale beer and cigarettes. And no man I ever knew smelled like that. And right wow. afterward, he took a shower. And I, the other scent that immediately comes to mind, the smell of Irish Spring, which is why I fucking hate Irish Spring. I cannot stand it. Sorry, <laughs> Irish Spring. And it was one of the weirdest experiences. Weirdest? Ever. Yeah, it was not good. And I remember... We, had, we were spending the whole day there. We were going to Los Angeles to go to an aunt's wedding. Mm-hmm. And he was going to drive us because he lived in Bakersfield and he could just drive us through. And me and my cousin Jose were singing in the living room. Selena had just come out. You oh, know, shit. The, fir- the <laughs> first movie I've ever seen in the movie oh, theaters. Oh, shit. Um, I stand by it. Thank you, J-Lo. Um <laughs> And the music was so good, and my sister always listened to it, and my girl cousins, always, all our cousins always listened to that music. So I was singing along and just, like, having my experience with that. And he just shouted from the bathroom, stop singing that song, that's a girl song. And I remember, it was the weirdest thing, because I was like, one, take several seats, because where have you been? <laughs> And number two, like, what? How are you going to tell me how to act right now? You don't know me. It felt like they were constantly worried about me being gay or queer or identifying as anything other than heteronormativity. Mm -hmm. And I try to come at that with piles of empathy because... Growing up in a dangerous town, it's not cool to be different. Like, folks get murdered here. There are drive-bys. You probably won't fare well. This was way before Isao knew he was gay, but he understood the role machismo culture played in his immigrant corner of California. It was the same way that Egyptian patriarchy played a huge role in mine. It kind of policed who you could be. Machismo culture to me at the time was a series of no's because you're a boy. You don't cry because you're a man. You don't complain because you're a man. You have to work harder because you're a man. You cannot feel because you're a man. Mm. I never saw men in my life cry. I never saw them talk about depression. I never saw them explore who they were. And that was so difficult to deal with when I'm being raised by such beautifully com- emotionally complex women. And at the time, it, it was that. It was a, searing, a series of posturings that I was learning. This is how you're going to hold your body up. 
This is how you're going to show your authority in a room. Mm -hmm. You don't have to clean up as much as your sister does. That's not your place. Mm -hmm. And that was, I, I didn't know how to, I knew nothing else. It just felt normal. Isau's mother was a strict Jehovah's Witness. He told me it kept him from following the same path as many neighborhood kids around him, many of them in gangs, like his brother. They lived together, but his brother fell almost as far away as his father. Yeah, it was really hard to connect with him and to talk mm-hmm. to him. And I didn't, I didn't have a male role model who looked or behaved like him. I wanted so badly to understand him. I remember making the clean choice not to model myself after him. And I remember my mom was like, you need to take him out. You need to, he needs to have this. Like she was actively trying to look for a way to get me around male energy. And he dressed me up. And I remember that was the first time I ever put on a costume was putting on my black high tops, my Chuck Taylors. Um, He creased my black dickies and he put me in this short sleeve red button up and it was buttoned all the way to the top and then he slicked my hair back and I remember just shifting my body and standing broader and more firmly and trying really hard to measure who I was as a six-year-old up against these dudes Mm -hmm who were these teens, these teen gangsters who honestly treated me very well. They took me out on a joyride. Um, I sat on an Impala with hydraulics and they turned it on and I ate it. I just like ate (laughs) shit. I fell off. And I remember it was in that moment that I was just like, I can't be like that. That I don't think that that's who I am. And I put on the clothes and I walked around all day today and I still don't feel it. And I feel like I would have felt it at this point. And you're six years old trying to decide who you're going to be for the rest of your life. It didn't get much easier for Isao. As he got older, he began to feel more and more haunted by his father's absence. He was in college when he finally decided to track down his dad and send that kind of intense message on MySpace. He was on his way to class when his cell phone rang. She went on to say, you know, mom still doesn't want you around. That is still the major point in our of of conflict between them that she simply doesn't want you around and it's making our home our home life harder and i said okay what a um, burden yeah i was like i see that and she called me a ghost i remember she was like you've just lingered throughout our entire lives as a ghost but you didn't ask for any of this yeah and i i didn't i was like oh But also, what a great descriptor. I had never known the word to give that feeling I felt. And I I didn't ask for it, yes. But also, what she said about her mother made me feel obviously bad, but for me, but also for her, where she said, anytime anyone ever spoke about you or that you came up in our household, he would cry. And she was reminded that you were the one who took his love away from her and i was like okay then that is enough i cannot have this conversation anymore soon after that his father's family reached out one more time i found out that he had slipped into um a coma oh my 
from surgery that went bad, trying to fix herniated discs. Yeah, it just came out of nowhere, and I went into shock, and that whole time is, I I can't piece it together. I've tried to go back through my journals, and it is the ramblings of a mad person. Um, My mom told me to go. She said, if you don't go, you will regret this for the rest of your life. And I walked into the hospital they took me to the elevator and it opened up and me and my uncle walked in and i immediately just turned my back and looked towards the door and he turned me around he said this is actually everyone and it was his wife two aunts that i had never met his sisters were there and they asked me point blank who i was and i said i'm his son and they they were very clear on saying that all this time they thought I had just been a rumor. And that was it. The confirmation of his existence that Isao had longed for. Now he understood his father would never give him what he needed. They walk me in and we go into the room and the life support machine is the only thing keeping him on. And he just looks so bloated. It looks like a very poorly preserved open casket and everyone is around us and I start freaking out because it's a sensory overload it smells weird Uh, the nurse will not leave there's that beeping my aunts are crying and I wanted to leave I just wanted to leave Mm -hmm. and my aunt caught my hand and she brought me over and she said you need to forgive him now you need to let him know that he can leave now and I just remember feeling so incensed by that because I was like I don't know that I'm ready I don't know that he deserves that and I don't know that I want to give that now and then I just started crying I just started wailing everything I wanted to achieve to prove to myself that I was going to be the best son, like the best Mm. kid, that he would regret ever leaving me. I have, and I have, you know, it it exists. I've materialized it for myself. And it meant nothing for my grief. (sighs) And I couldn't deal. And I, I drove home again. And that was my experience with my biological father. As we talked more, I realized why I understood so much of what he felt, despite our experiences being so different. Isao was looking for guidance somewhere, anywhere. And he was hoping that by knowing his father, he'd better understand himself, his role, his purpose. Because my dad is from Egypt and spent most of his time working and away from home, I longed for that guidance too. But he discovered, and I'm only now beginning to, Boys can turn out just fine, even if that so-called strong father presence isn't there. I'm curious about this connection between how you, you wanted this father figure and you wanted this masculine energy and you turned that into an opportunity to make a man of yourself. How do you think that happened? Early on, I was a very stubborn child and it was because... I would link it back 
to another memory that I have of masculinity in my life, which is that my mother was having a conversation with my great aunt, Roje, and my aunt must have asked my mother something about my grandfather. And my mother responded with, of all the things I wish that my father had shown me, I wish that he would have taught us to be more ambitious. And at that point in my life, my mother worked all the time. And I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine the idea of her being more ambitious because it just felt like she was doing it. And with that came her coaching me and telling me that it was important for me to make something of myself for myself. It turns out that Isao didn't actually need his dad to teach him how to be a man. His mom did a great job of giving him someone to look up to on her own. Being a, a macho or a machista is someone who just gets their shit together and takes care of their family. There is no marker for what that is. I am a macho. I get my shit together and do it. And once I adopted that and I fully embraced the title of a Chicano, I was able to understand what my place as a male identifying queer individual in our modern society has to be doing. How I see being a man, right, is being able to grow and, and being able to be um, a provider and a protector simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, and so you can't do either of those things if you aren't uh, leaving enough space for other people to grow in their own right. I just don't know how we can translate the things that we were taught that men do and women do into the next generation because things are changing and they're, they're changing fast. And it's not unique to our generation. Things have always been changing. Yeah. It's so radical how fast everything moves. And I think that, to your point, I think we have to cherry pick. I think this is one of the few instances where we can cherry pick exactly what we want to mm -hmm. carry forward. And I think that's what every generation has had to do. But for the longest time, it felt like that was the way it was done. That right. was what you had to do. Traditionalism yes. just took over everything. Exactly. Yeah. And I... And as immigrants, you know, you you strive to keep your kids proud of who they are, even yeah. if that means othering the shit out of them, you know? <laughs> but I think that it is critical on us as we move forward and create families or foster homes for, for made families to cherry pick the good parts exactly. of our experiences yep. Yep. and to really identify the parts that hurt us and to really sit with them and meditate on them and think about how to do the exact opposite. But, but compromise is scary, don't you think? Oh, uh, tremendously so. The concept of cherry picking was so stigmatized because of that immigrant experience that I feel like I needed to unlearn this requirement of being hyper-traditional yeah. and not compromising in order to develop into a man. Yes, I agree completely, and I feel identified through that statement. I think the point of us being children of immigrants is has such a huge effect on our outlook 
And I feel like that in its own carries a significant weight in how we choose to be men yeah. and how we choose to view our own masculinity. The ability to be vulnerable with yourself, right? Mm. I think that in terms of cherry picking my, or better yet, like unpacking my masculinity, I think one of the things that I really had to do was let go of that identity. This need to be strong or or be seen as like a man. Mm. I had to let that go. I totally understand what Isao meant. For me, one of the biggest hurdles to looking at myself and who I wanted to be as a man came after I learned to remove myself, at least partly from what the Muslim immigrant culture in Newark prescribes for me. That includes my father, who I love and respect very much. Isao had to do the same with the machismo of his family, and he didn't even get the benefit of knowing who exactly he needed to remove himself from. He'd always thought he'd need to chase the ghost of his father to find out. But when his aunt told him that he was the ghost that had hung over his father's family, it made him realize that he was never going to find out who he needed to be from his father. It freed him to be himself. So, since we launched Man Up in the past few weeks, I've been asking you guys to leave me voicemails about the episode you just heard, or anything really. I want to hear your stories too. So here's one in response to last week's show, where sex educator Jessica Valladolid told us about growing up and learning about sex surrounded by all boys. I have two older brothers, and I grew up in a very tomboyish environment. Basically, I was 12, my brother sat me down before I went to school one morning, and he kind of put it loud and clear that throughout my teenage years, boys were going to want one thing and one thing only, and that was sex, and not actually an interest in me. That's really the perspective that you get as a female growing up with brothers, growing up, you know, with a bunch of guys. But yeah, thank you. I appreciate this. One thing I learned from the convo that we had with Jessica was how much boys affect a girl's experience or like what she's supposed to view as normal when it comes to sex. But one of the things that was cool about Jessica's story is how much she learned from the boys too. They weren't just all mindless, sex-motivated zombies with her, you know? They were kind of at a loss too. And she was able to learn with them. And that's nice. I want to share one more voicemail that someone left that really shows how what we're talking about in this podcast is all around us all the time. Hey, uh, I was just listening to your podcast, Man Up, and I really enjoyed it. Both reminded me of a lot of thoughts I've had recently uh, about masculinity, and I'd like to see if we could explore some of those topics. I worked in a retail store that sold uh, heart t-shirts, and it got to me when so many women asked me whether their husbands or significant others would wear these shirts. It occurred to me what was going to happen to these men's masculinity if they wore a pink heart shirt. And then that brand actually made a black heart shirt just to actually sell to the men's demographic. So it real I realized that somehow the most defiantly strong thing a man could do is to be a man in that other outfit to push that boundary. But I've also found that that's the thing that frustrates the stereotypical man or the the guy who's living with those confines the most. Super interesting. I remember back in high school, like wearing pink was not cool at all until Puff Daddy wore it once. Then all of a sudden it was in everybody's closet. It was like the toughest thing to wear pink. 
and everybody was so proud of it. They were like, yeah, I'm wearing pink, what? Uh, it kind of shows how silly the rules can be, right? I'm going to keep my eyes peeled for the guys in black heart t-shirts. Anyways, thank you for those, and keep calling me and telling me your stories. Tell me about a parent or a role model that you had a complicated relationship with, or one you longed for as a kid. Call 805-MAN-UP-07 or 805-626-8707 and leave me a message or email me at manup at slate.com. We'll feature more on future shows. Man Up is hosted and written by me, Eamon Ismail. Our producers are Cameron Drews and Danielle Hewitt. Our executive producers are Jeffrey Bloomer and Loan Liu. Gabriel Roth is our editorial director of Slate Podcasts. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. TJ Raphael is the senior producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Please leave a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you'd like to listen. We'll be back next week with more Man Up. <laughs>